Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast, bonus episode number two. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. We just finished our episode called You Can Never Go Home. The murder of the Gilly family by a youthful parasite offender and family annihilator. Remember Billy's sister Jody? Of course. The younger sister he had been molesting for years, who he let live so that they could run away together? Yes. We ran down an article from the Washington Post wherein Jody relays her own story. And that's what we're going to share with you right now. I could barely breathe as I read the story. It was just a couple of paragraphs in the newspaper, yet they leapt out at me. On May 29th, in rural Ohio, an 18-year-old boy named Scott Moody had methodically shot six people, four of them members of his own family, before turning his gun on himself. There was only one survivor, Moody's 15-year-old sister, Stacy. Shot in the neck, she managed to call for help and was taken to a Columbus hospital. The deaths were all too familiar. Twenty-one years ago, when I was 16, my brother roved from room to room in our home in rural Oregon, killing my mother, my father, and my little sister, leaving me to live with the consequences. Like Moody, he was 18. Our family, like Moody's, lived in an isolated house and had endured hardships and economic woes that threatened the family farm. Both Stacy Moody and I were confronted by a bloodied brother who had just annihilated our families. There was just one difference. My brother spared both himself and me. Or did he? In the aftermath of a parasite, a child's murder of one or more parents, most of the attention focuses on the killer and the deceased parents. Little, if any, attention falls to any siblings who may have been left behind. It was with no small amount of dread that I felt the memories of my family tragedy resurfacing as I read Stacy's story. I knew that only a handful of people, myself among them, could shed light on some of the daunting challenges she may face if she survives her physical wounds. The psychic wounds take much longer to heal and require a lot of arduous work. But first, she must survive the day-to-day. She'll have to overcome depression and despair, complete and utter alienation, and guilt. Personal and profound, the trademark tattoo of the sole survivor that guilt will sometimes be overwhelming. Why didn't she see what he was planning? What could she have said or done to prevent it? She will spend years looking into the abyss, ever searching for the answer. I know, because that's what I did. In the early morning hours of April 27, 1984, I was awakened by the sound of my 11-year-old sister Becky screaming. 
minutes before, my brother, Billy Frank Gilly Jr., had picked up an aluminum baseball bat and killed our parents, Bill and Linda Gilly. Interrupted by Becky, he killed her too. The screams and pounding I heard downstairs convinced me that Billy had done something terrible. I listened, transfixed, as he climbed the stairs to my room. Clearly, I was next. But when my brother entered my bedroom, covered in blood, he was not carrying the bat. Agitated and pale, he kept repeating the same phrases over and over. We're free. I'm not crazy. Do you think I'm crazy? It was so bloody. I'm not crazy. Before the murders, my brother had accumulated a long and increasingly violent police record. Starting with fights and drug use, he graduated to larceny and arson before dropping out of school and working full-time for my father's failing tree service. My parents were uneducated, poor, and religious fundamentalists. They exerted a twisted combination of control and abuse, yet their incessant belittling and physical retribution toward my brother had mostly abated after Billy dropped out of school. I never imagined that he could kill my parents or my sister until that moment. I remember thinking, please tell me this is not really happening. I had always turned to books to escape. Now I looked up at the familiar row of paperbacks on my shelf. This is only a story, I told myself. I'm simply a character in a book who needs to figure out a way to call the police, which I eventually did. Hours later, Billy was arrested. I was the sole material witness at his trial. He was diagnosed as a sociopath, convicted of three counts of aggravated murder, and given three consecutive life sentences. Billy's life, like my parents and my sister's, was effectively over. But I was going to go on living. It was unclear to me at that point whether this was a gift or another version of a life sentence. My future stretched before me, formless, colorless, and forbidding. I stuffed my emotions deep inside, hoping one day to have the ability to really deal with what happened. And slowly, painfully, over time, I did. At first, I stayed with neighbors who wanted to adopt me. But when we went to the local legal aid society for guidance, the executive director there decided to take me in, somehow seeing the salvageable amid my broken spirit and poor grammar. Eventually, he and his wife became my legal guardians, the first and best in a long line of caring adults who invested enormous personal and financial resources in helping me survive. Over the next several years, I led two lives. On the outside, I was a normal teen trying to fit in. But internally, I was struggling against all odds to understand what had happened to our family and why. What I didn't know then was that I wasn't alone. My brother showed plenty of warning signs, his increasingly violent and inappropriate responses to social cues, his drug use, his refusal to stop eating and drinking high-sugar, low-nutrient foods that doctors had said would increase his irritability and propensity for violence. We found the medical reports and recommendations in the rubble of our family's papers. Because her brother killed himself, 
Stacy will not have to deal with that legacy. That is, after she finds a way to survive. Often, survivors are told to behave as normally as possible, to do what we would normally do. But there is no normal anymore. There is only before and after. And the after is filled with shock and loss, depression and despair, the erosion of your most basic values, beliefs, and trust in humanity, all of which take years to rebuild. There is also the day-to-day survival that Stacy will soon confront, figuring out where to live, who will be her guardian, whether to keep her name, the funerals, school, what belongings to keep, auctions, bills, and all of the hundreds of details that are both painful and a blessed distraction because they force you to deal with the here and the now. I remember the painful discomfort on people's faces whenever they recognized my name. You were left wanting to downplay what happened, leave town as soon as possible, or change your name. All of which I did. I remember all the questions that never seemed to end. What happened? Why did he do it? How did you survive? How is it that you are so normal? You must answer them politely, even though you have no good answers for them or for yourself. Only with time can new relationships and happy experiences and a future fill the gaping hole where family and normalcy and before existed. I hope that Stacy is lucky enough to receive the same gifts that I did smart, caring adults who expended enormous energy making sure that I received the help and direction to succeed in life. Despite what happened on April 27, 1984, my guardian convinced me that if I worked hard enough, I could learn to fly a plane, ski, get straight A's, travel the world, and get into Georgetown University, all of which I did. Afterward, I armed myself with a greater understanding of the human condition by immersing myself in Dostoevsky, Holocaust literature, and Jesuit mandates to give back, which I've tried to do ever since. From helping survivors of female genital mutilation write about their experiences, to serving on a commission that addressed the problems of youth violence. But I'm always conscious that I'm one of the lucky ones. I was plucked out of the muck, rescued, and now lead a very rich, fulfilling, healthy life with great prospects and relationships. Stacy can, too, as long as there are adults out there willing to ask themselves the questions that she may someday be asking, and that I still do. What can I do? Can I prevent another tragedy? Could I be that trusted adult for a troubled youth? Worth looking into the abyss for that, I think. We hope you liked this bonus episode. Let us know what you think. If you like them, we'll keep them coming. You can reach out to us at Parasite Podcast on Facebook, or Instagram, or simply email us at parasitepodcast at parasite.org. If you are able, please help support our show with a pledge through patreon.com 
backslash parasite podcast. Any money donated is tax deductible because we're a 501c3 charity and every cent you donate goes directly into not only supporting the production of this podcast, but also into the research we are doing to build a model to help identify threats to family safety. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next week. We're going to cover the case of Scott Moody, so you can decide for yourself if these two offenders are similar to each other. Bye for now. Goodbye. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs>